0: I think it was 1991 or so that I first really became aware of the atomic bomb. It was back when James Cameron's Terminator 2 was coming out, and back then you could only see the equivalent of DVD extras on HBO or Cinemax or something like that, where they would talk about the making of the movie. And I remember James Cameron being very solemn and talking about the scene where uh there's an atomic explosion in Los Angeles, and how it wasn't a very pleasant time filming the end of the world, or some phrase he used like that. And then about five or six years later, I attended a, uh, a creative writing camp uh, at the end of high school, and I met a poet there named John Bradley, really the first poet uh, who wasn't uh, long dead that I, that I ever knew about. Uh, and the first one certainly that I ever met. And John Bradley had a book that he had edited called Atomic Ghosts. And it is an anthology of uh, mostly American poets, if I remember right, and their response to the atomic age and the atomic bomb. And he told the class, this is kids going into their senior year of high school as I was, that he had the inspiration to put the book together because he was teaching a class or he was in a school visiting a class of kids about the same age and there was someone there who made the remark of what was Hiroshima, what was Nagasaki. And he thought it was important enough to uh, help fill that gap by doing so with poetry. And really ever since then I, I bought a copy of the book and that, and that I'm pretty sure is the first book of poetry I ever owned was this book called Atomic Ghosts. I think it's out of print but you can probably get a copy for a few dollars these days. Um, and I'm pretty sure that that is what kept the atomic bomb in my mind ever since when I moved away from home a few years after that, five or six years later, and I moved to Macon, Georgia, to research my Civil War poem. Um, one of the first places I went to, obviously, probably even before I went to look for a job, was the library, and the one of the first DVDs I ever took out of there was uh, a documentary by John Else from 1980 called The Day After Trinity. And that uh, that is about the Trinity Test that led to uh, the uh, bombings of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, Or actually, it's not about the Trinity Test, it's about everything that led up to it and then the bombings. And that solidified uh, Robert Oppenheimer and that whole drama in my mind as being something that I needed to write about, or if I couldn't write about it at least know more and more and more about it if I could. And a few years ago, I even posted uh, John Else's documentary on YouTube. And so far, no one has taken it down. So I will also post a link to that in the post description here. In the intervening years, I ended up reading uh, a handful of books about the atomic bomb, and I will uh, list them off here. Uh, Richard Rhodes, The Making of the Atomic Bomb, and then its sequel dark sun the making of the hydrogen bomb there is kai bird and martin sherwin's american prometheus the triumph and tragedy of j robert oppenheimer and peter goodchild's book j robert oppenheimer shatterer of worlds now i can't write a book like that like like any of those books Uh, I don't have the equipment or the knowledge for it, the scientific knowledge for it. Um, I have written one small poem about Robert Oppenheimer. And I tried to write a play about it, but that didn't work. And I was struggling for a while to figure out what can I do with this interest and with this uh, astounding and important topic Mm -hmm. in history, especially in American history. What can I do with this that no one else has done? And uh, a few years ago, the solution I came up with was to uh, just take out the quotations from the people who lived through the experience and who made the decisions, uh, organize them in some uh, coherent fashion, and just present the quotations to see how it happened that America went from uh, being a country that uh, deplored the use of bombing uh, of bombs on civilians and on civilian targets to being able to firebomb Tokyo and then uh, drop the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki a few years later. Um, the way I just put that might make it sound as if uh, I'm against all those things. Uh, at the end of the day, I'm not really sure that I am. And and I also don't think that presenting these quotations isn't, is, also, is either an excuse uh, to present my opinion on things. I think it's important to just present what these people said as they were living through the process and as they were making the decisions. I think that's the important thing to see, and uh, to withhold judgment and to withhold criticism even from uh, uh, a decision as momentous as this. And then it's also worth uh, considering that most of the huge events in history that depended upon the decisions of a very few people, it's worth considering that those are as difficult and that they aren't uh, they aren't worthy of a snap judgment of any kind the kind of snap judgments that we seem to make about absolutely everything today if only because uh, twitter and facebook and the rest of it and cable news and everything else you can imagine only has space for snap or hip or fashionable judgments so with that out of the way the the very first uh, the very first collection of quotations, and I, uh, I posted all of these on my blog many years ago, and if, if uh, the text is still up there, I will post a link there as well, and I separated, it, separated this collection of quotations into five days and just called it Week of the Bomb, and I will see if I can do that over the next five days here and just read them out. The very first comes from Franklin Roosevelt on September 1st, 1939, and this is what he says. The ruthless bombing from the air of civilians in unfortified centers of population, during the course of the hostilities which have raged in various quarters of the earth during the past few years, and which has resulted in the maiming and in the death of thousands of defenseless men, women, and children. Has sickened the hearts of every civilized man and woman, and has profoundly shocked the conscience of humanity. If resort is had to this form of inhuman barbarism, during the period of the tragic conflagration with which the world is now confronted, hundreds of thousands of innocent human beings, who have no responsibility for, and who are not even remotely participating in, the hostilities which have now broken out will lose their lives i am therefore addressing this urgent appeal to every government which may be engaged in hostilities publicly to affirm its determination that its armed, that its armed forces shall in no event and under no circumstances undertake the bombardment from the air of civilian populations or of unfortified cities Upon the understanding that these same rules of warfare will be scrupulously observed by all their opponents, I request an immediate reply." And of course, if someone with an agenda was quoting that, they would say, uh, look at how hypocritical America ended up being. Uh, To my mind though, the idea that Franklin Roosevelt actually believed that there would be an understanding uh, between any two nations uh, leading up to World War II and then into it, that they would uh, desist from making or using uh, weapons um, is kind of ridiculous. Uh, I don't think that he took this uh, request seriously. Um, and of course, he's not even talking about atomic weapons at this time. He's probably just talking about. Uh, especially the German uh, bombardment of Spain and Guernica and, uh, and other in such incidents. And here is the second quotation. Here is Richard Rhodes summarizing the early opinion on the bombing of civilians. He says, one of Franklin Roosevelt's first acts was to appeal to the belligerents to refrain from bombing civilian populations. Revulsion against the bombing of cities had grown in the United States since at least the Japanese bombing of Shanghai in 1937. When Spanish fascists bombed Barcelona in March of 1938, Secretary of State Cordell Hull condemned the atrocity publicly by saying, No theory of war can justify such conduct. I feel that I am speaking for the whole American people. And in June, the Senate passed a resolution condemning the, quote, inhuman bombing of civilian populations, end quote. And then there is the May 27th, 1943 order from British bomber command on the destruction of Hamburg, and this is well into World War Two. obviously. It says, the importance of Hamburg, the second largest city in Germany, with a population of one and a half million is well known. The total destruction of this city would achieve immeasurable results in reducing the industrial capacity of the enemy's war machine. This, together with the effect on German morale, which would be felt throughout the country, would play a very important part in shortening and winning the war. The mission is to destroy Hamburg. And this is a remark of a lieutenant on the bombing of Hamburg. The burning of Hamburg that night was remarkable, in that I saw not many fires but one. Set in the darkness was a turbulent dome of bright red fire, lighted and ignited like the glowing heart of a vast Brazier. I saw no flames, no outlines of buildings, only brighter fires which flared like yellow torches against a background of bright red ash. Above the city was a misty red haze. I looked down, fascinated but aghast, satisfied yet horrified. I had never seen a fire like that before and was never to see its like again. And here are the words of a nineteen-year-old in Hamburg. We got to the Loeschplatz all right, but I couldn't go on across to the Eifestrasse, because the asphalt had melted. There were people on the roadway, some already dead, some still lying alive but stuck in the asphalt. They must have rushed onto the roadway without thinking. Their feet had got stuck, and then they had put out their hands to try to get out again. They were on their hands and knees, screaming. And this is a 15-year-old in Hamburg. Four-story-high blocks of flats the next day were like glowing mounds of stone right down to the basement. Everything seemed to have melted and pressed the bodies away in front of it. Women and children were so charred as to be unrecognizable. Their brains had tumbled from their burst temples, and their insides from the soft parts under the ribs. How terribly these people must have died. The small children lay like eels on the pavement. And here is Richard Rhodes describing the bombing of Hamburg. The firestorm completely burned out some eight square miles of the city, an area about half as large as Manhattan, The bodies of the dead cooked in pools of their own melted fat, in sealed shelters like kilns, or shriveled to small blackened bundles that littered the streets. Bomber command killed at least 45,000 Germans that night, the majority of them old people, women, and children. The bombing of Hamburg was hardly unique. It was one atrocity in a war of increasing atrocities. Between 1941 and 1943, the German army on the Eastern Front captured and enclosed in prisoner of war camps, without food or shelter, some two million Soviet soldiers. At least one million of them died of exposure and starvation. During the same period, the final solution to the Jewish question, the vast Nazi program to exterminate the European Jews began in deadly earnest after the Wannsee Conference of Coordinating Agencies met in suburban Berlin on January 20, 1942. Whatever moral issues such atrocities raise, they resulted from the progressive escalation of war by all its belligerents in pursuit of victory. Even the final solution, because the Nazis believed that the Jews constituted a separate nation, lodged subversively in their midst, nationality being defined in the Nazi canon, primarily in terms of race, and as such the nation with which the Third Reich was preeminently at war. It was Hitler's particular perversity to divine victory over the Jews as extermination. The Allies in their defensive war against Germany and Japan wanted only total surrender in return for which the mass killing of combatants and civilians would stop. And here is Kurt Vonnegut in his novel Slaughterhouse Five on the bombing of Dresden. He was present at the bombing of Dresden as a POW, I believe. Every day we walked into the city and dug into basements and shelters to get the corpses out as a sanitary measure. When we went into them, a typical shelter, an ordinary basement usually, looked like a streetcar full of people who had simultaneously had heart failure. Just people sitting there in their chairs, all dead. A firestorm is an amazing thing. It doesn't occur in nature. It's fed by the tornadoes that occur in the midst of it, and there isn't a damned thing to breathe. We brought the dead out. They were loaded on wagons and taken to parks, large open areas in the city which weren't filled with rubble. The Germans got funeral pyres going, burning the bodies to keep them from stinking and from spreading disease. 130,000 corpses were hidden underground. It was a terribly elaborate easter egg hunt. We went to work through cordons of German soldiers. Civilians didn't get to see what we were up to. And after a few days, the city began to smell, and a new technique was invented. Necessity is the mother of invention, and so we would bust into the shelter, gather up valuables from people's laps, without attempting identification, and turn the valuables over to guards. Then soldiers would come with a flamethrower, and stand the door, and cremate the people inside get the gold and jewelry out, and then burn everybody inside. And now we come back to Franklin Roosevelt a few years after his first remark, and he says, We must face the fact that modern warfare, as conducted in the Nazi manner, is a dirty business. We don't like it. We didn't want to get in it. But we are in it, and we're going to fight it with everything we've got. And uh, many of the quotations to follow here will come from Air Force General Curtis LeMay. Uh, And whatever you think of him, I at least respect uh, his clarity and uh, his honesty. Um, He is uh, not going to sugarcoat anything. So this is Air Force General Curtis LeMay, father of strategic bombing on the firebombing of Japanese cities prior to the dropping of the atomic bomb. He says, no matter how you slice it, you're going to kill an awful lot of civilians, thousands and thousands. But if you don't destroy the Japanese industry, we're going to have to invade Japan. And how many Americans will be killed in an invasion of Japan? 500,000 seems to be the lowest estimate. Some say a million. We're at war with Japan. We were attacked by Japan. Do you want to kill Japanese, or would you rather have Americans killed? And here is Richard Rhodes on strategic bombing. The strategic bombing survey estimates that, quote, probably more persons lost their lives by fire at Tokyo in a six-hour period than at any equivalent... Of time in the history of man. You read that again, that's incredible. Probably more persons lost their lives by fire at Tokyo in a six hour period than at any equivalent period of time in the history of man. The firestorm at Dresden may have killed more people, but not in so short a space of time. More than 100,000 men, women, and children died in Tokyo on the night of March 9th to the 10th, 1945. A million were injured, at least 41,000 seriously. A million and all lost their homes. 2,000 tons of incendiaries delivered that punishment. In modern notation, that is, two kilotons. But the wind, not the weight of the bombs alone, created the conflagration. And therefore, the efficiency of the slaughter was in some sense still in part an act of God." And here is Curtis LeMay again. He says, Killing Japanese didn't bother me very much at that time. It was getting the war over that bothered me. So I wasn't worried particularly how many people we killed in getting the job done. I suppose if I had lost the war, I would have been tried as a war criminal. Fortunately, we were on the winning side. Incidentally, everybody bemoans the fact that we dropped the atomic bomb and killed a lot of people at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That, I guess, is immoral, but nobody says anything about the incendiary attacks on every industrial city in Japan. And the first attack on Tokyo killed more people than the atomic bomb did. Apparently, that was all right. I guess the direct answer to your question is, yes, every soldier thinks something of the moral aspects of what he is doing. But all war is immoral, and if you let that bother you, you are not a good soldier. And uh, for anyone out there who hasn't seen it already, uh, the documentary, Errol Morris's documentary The Fog of War, uh, where he interviews uh, Robert McNamara not just about his Vietnam career, but his time with Curtis LeMay uh, and the bombing of Japan um, is, uh, is required viewing in this case. Uh, when Curtis LeMay says that we, uh, that we, uh, I'm speaking as an American here, uh, carried out incendiary attacks on every industrial city in Japan. There's a wonderful sequence in the fog of war where it goes through the, the 30 or so, whatever it was, two dozen or 30 cities that were firebombed in Japan, and it gives their population count, and then it flashes to an equivalent American city. Um, for me, anyway, uh, Errol Morris, I suppose, was, was making that comparison to say, I suppose, that this should not be done. Or it's very hard not to take uh, uh, the uh, regretful words of an aging Robert McNamara coupled with a Philip Glass score and wonderful filmmaking to make it seem as if that's the point he's making. Um, I just take it as more evidence that, as LeMay says, all war is immoral. Um, But that's not a reason not to fight a war. Uh, I'm not a very good liberal poet in this way, believing these things. Um, And I think it's just incredible that he could say, I suppose if I had lost the war, I would have been tried as a war criminal. We need to be able to hear that and understand that, especially Americans do. This is a complex thing. And here is Air Force General Curtis LeMay one more time tonight, justifying the bombing of cities and civilians because they were all obviously working for the war effort. He says, All you had to do was visit one of those targets after we'd roasted it and see the ruins of a multitude of tiny houses with a drill press sticking up through the wreckage of every home. The entire population got into the act and work to make those airplanes or munitions of war, men, women, and children. We knew we were going to kill a lot of women and kids when we burned a town. Had to be done. Uh, I don't know how accurate that is. Um, that could just be him stepping back and trying to justify it. But uh, but by that logic, uh, I'm sure that... Uh, if someone had decided to firebomb San Francisco or Charlotte or uh, uh, Tallahassee, uh, they probably would have justified it by saying, look at, uh, look at what these people were doing for the war effort, even if they weren't actually fighting. Um, that seems to be beside the point to the general immorality that LeMay is talking about. And here is uh, American Secretary of War Henry Stimson. the difficulty of precision bombing of cities with manufacturing sites spread out everywhere, talking about how hard it is to just bomb the manufacturing sites when they are so close to cities. He says, "Uh, I told him how how I was trying to hold off the Air Force I'm sorry, let me start that again. I told him how I was trying to hold the Air Force down to precision bombing, but that with the Japanese method of scattering, its manufacture it was rather difficult to prevent area bombing i told him i was anxious about this feature of the war for two reasons first because i did not want to have the united states get the reputation for outdoing hitler in atrocities and second i was a little feature that bef- it was a little feature that before we could get ready the air force might have japan so thoroughly bombed out that this new weapon we were working on would not have a fair background to show its strength." So right there is the complexity as well. You have someone like Stimson um, trying to make uh, what we might think of as a humane argument, but then he comes around again to the, uh, to the political one, which is, we want uh, uh, virgin territory for this bomb that we're working on to see what it really does. And here is uh, Robert Oppenheimer recalling the words of Secretary of War Henry Stimson, which says in which he said uh, that he thought it was, quote, appalling that there should be no protest over the air raids, which we were conducting against Japan, which in the case of Tokyo led to such extraordinary heavy loss of life. He didn't say that airstrikes shouldn't be carried on. But he did think there was something wrong with a country where no one questioned that. And I thought at one point that I would try and read two of these in one night, but I think, given the material, that's not a realistic thing to do. It should be taken in small doses. So hopefully tomorrow, um, I will finally get to the physicist's and the scientists working at Los Alamos and as well as uh, uh, the politicians, especially Truman, on the creation of the atomic bomb and the uh, and the decision to actually use it until then. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes?